Hey guys, before we get stuck into today's episode, I want to thank the sponsor of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, and that is Unify Health Supplements. Unify have the most premium, high-quality, science-backed products on the market in Australia today, and you guys can use the code TFLP to save 10% off your next order at unifyactive.com. Unify has a range of products, including whey protein isolate, plant-based protein, a pre-workout, creatine monohydrate, and their best-selling product, the Hydration Formula. So again, use that code TFLP to save 10% at unifyactive.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Dean Miller. I'm a sleep scientist. I work in, with everyone between athletes, shift workers, and military personnel to help optimize their sleep, recovery, and shift work. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about, a little bit about that. Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. Dean, welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, mate. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. I uh, really do appreciate your time, and I think I speak for all of the listeners and the viewers of the show. I'm super excited to, to dive into some of today's content. Yeah, thanks, Danny. It's great to be on. Mate, I want to bring it all the way back to, I guess, the reason why, um, I guess, you decided that sleep was an area that you wanted to, to focus on um, and a bit of background about yourself, right? Like what, what did you growing up? Were you, were you playing sport yourself? What was the interest in, in sleep and um, a bit of information, I guess, around your, your studies and how you've gotten to the position you're in today? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, yes, I was, as most of us when we were young, an aspiring athlete. Um, my sport was cricket. So ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to play cricket. I was originally from South Africa, but I moved over here. So the goal was to, to play cricket um, all through school. Um, I was going pretty well for myself. And then, yeah, injuries, obviously not talented enough, all that usual stuff. Um, and just, yeah, love the athletic environment. Um, from that, uh, post-school, continued to play cricket and, and keep fit, etc. Um, but went straight into uni um, and did a psychology degree with a double major in exercise science. So still keeping that exercise science link. I actually wanted to be a, a, a sports psychologist um, at that point. And yeah, right. Yeah, so I read that. just the, the, the studies or whatever changed your mind or what was the what was the, yeah. the catalyst for changing course? So I had a chat. I actually had a couple of mentors in the sports science, uh, sports psychology space, um, and yeah, continued working in that area or trying to upskill and just through through studies, I kind of earned away from the psychology space more into the physiology exercise science space. Um, so once yeah. I finished that, that degree, um, I actually met uh, through the South Australian Institute of Sport because uh, I'm based in Adelaide, um, Dr. Michele Lastella, who's a sleep researcher. He just finished his PhD in sleep among athletes and we, we just hit it off. We were sort of that, the same... Uh, cut from the same cloth, I guess, in terms of we, we wanted yep. to be athletes. He was a soccer player um, and then moving into academia. So he sort of took me under his wing. Um, we've got a sleep lab here in Adelaide at Central Queensland University. It's a little bit funny that it's in Adelaide, but uh, <laughs> so I got involved in a few research studies looking at sleep in athletes and just having that, that face-to-face access with athletes and doing the research at the same time. I really loved it. So... That was more of a work experience thing, um, which eventually yep. I didn't doing 
uh, and doing a PhD um, at, at that same lab. And I've been there yeah, up, up till now. So it's about six or seven years at the same lab and collaborating with other, other athlete organisations as well. So that's where I'm at now. Yeah, that was the studies part of it. Brilliant. I think it's so common and, you know, myself included, people who come from a sporting background who have a, I guess, a deep interest in, in a specific sport in particular, when we don't continue down that path, you eventually end up in the space in some way or another. Like I find a lot of satisfaction now from working with athletes on their strength and conditioning or their mindset or their nutrition. And then the satisfaction I get now is actually seeing them succeed or going out and watching them perform and seeing them improve their results. So I'd imagine it'd be quite similar for you. And obviously sleep being such a detrimental thing for performance and recovery, it must be pretty cool to still be within this space just in a different form. Yeah, for sure. And even like I'm 28, so like I'm not I'm not that far away from when I was say in, in the youth athlete shoes and um, the the resources that they get that I guess the, this generation of practitioners have, have built is is amazing compared to even what it was 10, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, the resources of SNC uh, recovery strategies and and the information out there is, has really grown, and being a part of that is really great to see. Help, help the, the young athletes and, and even the athletes that have been around for, for 20 to 25 years um, integrate into the, the, new, the new systems. It's, uh, yeah, it's been fascinating to see even over the last five years. Do you feel like there's been a bit of a crossover in the disciplines that you learnt as an athlete crossing over into business and, and study and, and how you're able to apply, I guess, I don't know whether it's the work ethic, but even maybe the structure and the habit-forming side of things with being uh, at the highest level within your own profession now? Yeah, I think um, definitely the training principles and, and, and I guess showing up every day, it, it does translate. I think probably where I, I've gained the most value out of, I guess, what I, my expertise that I could give is when I really started out, uh, but probably when I, when I finished school, went into uni, I just wanted to absorb all of the information um, as, as a whole rather than exp- being an expert in one area, which yep. is important once you get to a certain stage. But um, I went and did a, a, the ASCA level one strength and conditioning course. I went and did psych, I went and did exercise science. And because I got exposure to all of those different things, I was able to know which direction I wanted to go in and probably which direction I'd be most helpful in um, as a practitioner mm-hmm. or as a scientist. Um, so I think that's probably where the, the, I gained the most knowledge or the, the, the most um, insight into how to, to, to work with athletes or work with shift workers um, or moving on to shift workers and I'm moving on straight away but um, I had to do night shifts to do my studies to study sleep so gaining that early experience it's the same as being an athlete going through and becoming an SC coach all that sort of stuff so yeah it's that early early learning that that builds you up to being a, a niche expert in one of those areas if that makes sense yeah definitely I have that conversation with a lot of personal trainers that are just coming into the industry now as well. It's like, you know, I think it, obviously as you get further down your the path of your career, I think it's super important to eventually find your niche and find what yeah. you're really, really interested in and what you feel like you're really good at and, and push down that path as hard as you can. But early days, it's like, all right, get a bit of, dabble with a bit of everything, get a bit of experience here and there, be, be willing to work for free here and there, try this, try that. And then it really starts to weed out things you really don't like but at the same time your strengths and the areas that you actually find genuine interest and passion in 
Um, something you mentioned before around, you know, athlete, current athletes and um, the technology and, and the advancement in all the studies and whatnot for recovery and performance at the moment, how, how incredible that is. When you look back at, say, some of the all-time great athletes from 10, 20 years ago, do you feel like with the help of some of the technology we've got now, particularly, obviously, we'll stay on the topic of sleep, with the improvements in the data around sleep and whatnot, um, if that had been an emphasis back then, we could have seen athletes being even better and reach like further heights than what they did at that current time, much before, um, I guess, our current athletes do? It's a good question. Um, I would say the thing that's probably changed the most is uh, the ability to measure those variables that, that we're looking to address, so sleep being one. Um, measuring sleep mm. in the field is uh, has been an explosion after the last 10 years. So typically what the gold standard, how we measure sleep in the lab is uh, called polysomnography. So that's all those wires on your head, on your face, ECG dots, and basically that's measuring brain waves, um, eye movements, all a lot of physiological variables. And that's cost, like, that was around back then, but you're not gonna get Michael Jordan into the lab five times a week to measure. Much more invasive, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and not worth it in that sense. Um, and then the technology kind of moved towards uh, actigraphy-based measurements. So that's basically just uh, an accelerometer on your wrist that measures movement. If one, if you're moving, zero, if you're still, and then that assumes whether you're asleep or awake. And that was the technology that was probably around back then um, to measure mm. sleep and wake. And nowadays we've got the, the sensors that measure heart rate and are a bit more advanced. But I think at the, at the end of the bell curve where you're talking about those elite athletes, um, they're either physiologically blessed to perform in the sport that they, um, that they are performing, um, regardless of potentially maybe not getting as much sleep as the, the person next to them, but also their, their habits were probably just as good, even though they weren't measuring yeah. potentially. So um, I think it would be yes. Some athletes back then would have performed a lot better and then some wouldn't, depending on, on the type, as you know, from athlete to athlete. Yeah. Um, the interventions will work differently. But it's, it's an interesting question to pose. From the fitness wearables perspective, obviously we, we see the, the number of different variables that can be tracked at the moment. And, you know, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Will Ahmed from Whoop, which um, yeah. obviously you have uh, have a big connection with and um, have been a big part of that as well. What do you think for the average person who's maybe not a professional athlete, um, someone who's just wanting to take care of their health and fitness, what are the main variables that you would recommend um, that we actually become conscious of and, and aim to impact in a positive way, whether it be heart rate variability or whether it be the amount of deep sleep we're getting, you know, resting heart rate in terms of how, how well we're um, improving our fitness and performance and whatnot. What are some of the variables that you think are, are really worth putting attention to? Yeah, so when we talk about sleep specifically, um, when, you, when we work in, I guess, the sleep science space, the main ones we want to look at when measuring sleep through a wearable uh, total sleep time. So the amount of sleep you're getting each night total, we want that to be, mm -hmm. I mean, athletes, you want it to be close to nine, um, everyday people above eight. Um, if you can, that's on average. Don't freak out if one day it wakes you up a bit early, it's fine. Um, so yeah, total sleep time um, over a, an extended period. So we want to look at our, 
our average and, and deviations to our average. And uh, that's really important. The second one that's super important that is hard to, um, hard to implement in modern society is consistent bed and wake times. Um, there's a thing called mm. social, social jet lag um, where the difference between weekday sleep and weekend sleep is so different that on Monday morning, you're effectively jet lagged because you've shifted your sleep cycle or your circadian rhythm. Um, and that can be detrimental for your sleep and your performance on a Monday morning. Um, so using wearables that can measure how long you're sleeping for and when you're doing it and are able to help you do it at a regular time is the two biggest bank of buck variables that you can use um, in terms of sleep. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think the the consistent sleep and wake time is something that I've become increasingly conscious of lately yeah. and not to say that that's actually improved fucking at all, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it's something yeah. that I've started to really put a bit more focus on and, and something I think it might have even been Will mentioned it in his episode where he was like, you know, if I'm sleeping at around 11.30 p.m. every night and I'm up at 6 every single day, but the, the amount of deep sleep I'm having in that period of time is better than the person who's going to sleep for maybe a longer period, but in very inconsistent times throughout the week. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough one, I think, depending on obviously what you do for work or what your lifestyle is yeah. like. Um, but the question that I've had a lot lately, particularly since bringing a bit more awareness around um, the wearables like Whoop is around the heart heart rate variability and what we can actively do outside of obviously our exercise and our nutrition and whatnot to positively impact the HRV. Um, is there anything that you can recommend that we can, that's within our control that we can be doing to improve HRV? Yeah, so HRV, we've done a number of studies looking at wearables. Um, I think the last one we did was up to six wearables, including Whoop, Aura Ring, Garmin, and a few others. Um, looking at the raw metrics. So that's the most important thing we want to do is make sure that the raw metrics we're looking at are the metrics are accurate and representative of what we want to find out. So HRV is, I guess, the it's an indication of how um, well your body is able to respond in reference to the stressor. And, and that's all relative to our, to our autonomic nervous system. So your listeners are probably familiar with the sympathetic and parasympathetic responses. Uh, sympathetic, mm -hmm. uh, more of a stressful event, let's say, um, if, if you take it all the way back living in the bush or something, the sympathetic nervous system is going to alert you to a predator that's stalking behind you. And that's the, well, that's the point. Sympathetic, the parasympathetic is going to slow your system down, which is more related to sleep or meditation, um, mm. um, bringing your heart rate down. Um, the, there's a number of different ways to use HRV, I would say, Depending on the on the wearable or or the device that you're using to measure it, the utility of it differs. Um, some measure okay. it at night, some measure it in the morning, but the, the general gist is the same. Um, and I touched on it a little bit before. Um, we want to really use our own individual baselines as that reference point. Um, so generally speaking, yeah. with HRV, um, we want it to be stable. And that if if your HRV is stable. Um, that means you're and you're still doing your training, what you need to do, and you're feeling good. That is best case scenario, and there's no deviations to that. Um, if it goes up, that's most of the time 
a good thing. If it goes down, it could be indicating a bad thing. You might be overtraining, you might be getting sick. Um, so there's a lot of nuance to these these variables, um, and mm. we've used that in the research. So um, through we've got a number of collaborations with these wearable companies. One of them being Wood. Um, so through my PhD, worked with Wood at validating their device, and then through COVID, actually we obviously didn't have a sleeve lab and we couldn't do any research. So we we did some studies with Whoop with the wearable data because people were still at home wearing their Whoops. So the world basically became yeah. our lab. Um, so variables like HRV, um, actually we found respiratory rate. Um, if you see uh, you see a lot of the, the wearables using a um, respiratory rate as well. It's a very stable mm-hmm. metric. Um, so it doesn't change too much unless you're going to get sick or unless there's a change in your physiology. So. We actually used respiratory rate to predict who had COVID and who didn't. Um, and you may have seen a little bit of that with, yeah, right. uh, with that study during COVID. So we had PGA athletes wearing wearing the, the whoop and flagging whether they need to get tested before they start their, their round in the States and uh, wow. stopping, stopping the COVID from spreading. Um, so it, the providing context to, to the metrics and using them correctly is super powerful. Um, but then sometimes depending on the mm. device or how you implement them, you can sort of get lost in the numbers, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But as a general rule, it's just like deviation from your own mean and um, use that yeah. to, to inform your training or whatever you're doing. A few times, yeah, every now and then I'll sleep with mouth tape on. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether it's just, well, I don't know if, even know if it could be placebo, but it, it, it might, may just be because for whatever reason, I've actually recovered better that night just in general, or maybe it's consistent sleep time or deeper sleep, or whatever. But do variables like that, where you're using something like mouth tape or maybe blue light blocking glasses or maybe some form of supplement before sleep, can that have a drastic effect on HRV and respiratory rate? Uh, in terms of HRV, I mean, in- they're physiological variables, right? So any any change that you make to your physiology is potentially going to impact it. Um, yeah. In, so, and that may be different from person to person. Um, in terms of, of sleep, um, with, with any of these interventions that um, people use to, to potentially improve sleep or improve recovery or uh, whatever they want, want to try, um, my general rule of thumb is as long as we can safeguard that against being detrimental, then go for it. Um, with mouth taping mm-hmm. is an interesting one at the moment and it's, it's become quite popular. Um, there, there, there's limited evidence in terms of its efficacy, but there was a study showing it helped with snoring people with sleep apnea. So there's not much research done there at the minute. Um, and I guess as a general rule, you would say, yeah, breathing through your nose is uh, could be considered better for, for respiratory mm-hmm. um, considerations during sleep, but then potentially for someone who, who may have obstructive sleep apnea or something, mouth taping could be actually really bad. Um, so <laughs> it, it's providing that contact, um, context, sorry. Um, so in that context, I would say probably no, don't do that because there might be a consequence. Uh, but as a general rule, I always reverse engineer it that way. So if someone comes to me with a, with an intervention that they've been trying and I believe me, I've heard them all. Um, and I can tick off my boxes that say, okay, it's not caffeine. It's not going to do this to the sleep cycle. It's not 
light that's going to move clockwork. Um, I'm not going to shit on their idea because if it's, if it's working for them and it's a placebo and it's not going to negatively impact it, then it should be fine. Um, well, we'll be fine. Um, so yeah, that's the general rule. And you'll probably hear me say this a lot. It depends. <laughs> um, it's an annoying yeah. answer a lot of the time. It doesn't create amazing social media. It's just a media. definite answer. Yeah, it doesn't create amazing social media content. But <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of con- context to, to a lot of these interventions. You mentioned uh, shift workers before and the, the work you've done around, um, I guess, effective sleep and whatnot around shift workers. I, I would assume there's a bit of a crossover there when we come to topics like um, uh, jet lag and stuff as well, when you're changing time zones and stuff, I could be completely wrong. Um, yeah. But what is some of the work that you've done in, in that area? Because I know there's a lot of people that listen to this show um, that are shift workers, whether they're working in the hospital or whether it's, you know, my old man's, my old man's a cop, so he does a lot of shift work as well. Yeah. Um, and even as a coach, when I'm working with someone in person or online, there tends to be a lot of difficulties around just structure and, and sleep and even the nutrition side, to be honest, when you have someone yeah. doing shift work. So what's been your findings in that space? Yeah, so it's a, it's a big, big area of research uh, in our community because, yeah, I guess it's, it's sort of the, not the low-hanging fruit, but like it's where we can make the most difference in terms of the sleep scientists. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've got our circadian rhythms. They last just, just over 24 hours each day. Um, and we want to regulate them depending on, on the shift work. Like they, they differ considerably, but I guess the main goal across the board really would be to spend the least amount of time in circadian misalignment. So what circadian misalignment means is um, your body or your body clock does not align with your environment. So um, my brain thinks it's 4am, but it's midday outside and the sun's out. Um, so that, that we know that's not good for us um, and extended period of time under um, circadian misalignment can be associated with adverse outcomes on the long term. Um, and we know that. What we can do, though, is um, use strategies to effectively shift our body clock or manage um, manage our sleep. Um, and, always, and effectively, circadian misalignment, and you were on exactly the right track, it is jet lag. It's the same thing. It's just that we call jet lag jet lag because more people experience yeah. jet lag than shift work will. I assume more people would fly overseas than work shift work, but uh, physiologically, uh, they're the same thing. Um, and okay. managing that is this, managing jet lag and managing shift work is the same. It's just that shift work is more chronic and it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of interventions themselves, the science is pretty well set um, and there is some work to, to grow up, but it, it's a huge body of work. So the only things that are going to move your body clock, um, or your circadian rhythm, if I'm referring to body clock as circadian rhythm, it's, it's the same thing as well, for the listeners. Yep. Um, the, the best way to move it is light, as you've touched on before. So there's a, uh, it's called the phase response curve to light. So we all have a, an idea or a start of our body clock um, each day. and that coincides with about, it's between midnight and 4 p.m. for most people, um, 4 a.m., sorry, midnight and 4 a.m. Um, and that's the bottom of our body clock. Um, that's where our core body temperature reaches its lowest and we're most primed for sleep. Um, 
that's when you're going to get usually get those restorative sleep um, at that time of day. That's your bang for buck sleep. So with light, if you get light just before your uh, CBT min, your the bottom of your body clock, it's going to move your body clock later in the day. Um, if right. you get if you get light after the CBT min, um, then it's going to move you earlier in the day. So light pushes you in each direction, each side of that that body right. clock start, um, which is fine because usually we're asleep, right? So we're not getting the light. Um, but with shift work, we in this room now it's all fluorescent lighting that's going to move my body clock. Um, if you're uh, working in the mines, fluorescent lighting is going to move your body clock. Um, so we we've got to manage that and sort of track where where your body clock's going to move. Um, it's probably easier to conceptualize it with jet lag. Um, so if, if, if yep. you're in Melbourne, so if you're flying to, to Paris, for example, if you're flying, um, like we're doing the plans for the athletes to, to fly to uh, Paris for the Olympics next year, uh, your body clock minimum or start will be around, uh, let me do the quick maths around, 4 p.m. in Paris when you get there. So to move you right. back into the sink, I'll say to you, Danny, go out. Uh, between uh, 4 p.m. and 1, well, 1 p.m. and 4 p.m., go out, no sunnies, get the sunlight. And then after that, you've got to avoid light. That's the thing that people often neglect. Right. They think that sunlight is the only answer. Um, when in actual fact, if you didn't get sun in that 1, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. and got sun after it, you're actually going to prolong your jet lag using the sunlight because you're going in the wrong direction. So you're going the wrong way around the clock. Wow. Um, okay. So that, yeah. So that's a little intricacies about jet lag. Um, it's getting better. Like people are more aware of the light exposure now, um, but it, it is very dependent on which way you fly and which, um, and your, your personal sleep habits, right? So your, your body clock might be two hours different from mine. Yeah. So you, your light exposure is different to mine as well. So you can go uh, pretty well down the rabbit hole a little bit in terms of controlling it to, to the hour. <laughs> and that's what, we, that's what we do with athletes. Um, but shift work is the same. Um, just depends on, on sh- shift structure. And so can that, can that be done in a short period of time? So let's say you've got a, a policeman who's just finished a, a regular shift throughout the week and they're about to go on to night shift. So the day before they start night shift, that's when they want to look at trying to shift their, um, I can't remember what you referred to yeah, it as, yeah. their kind of like middle, body clock middle start. point or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, there's a few names for it. There's core body temperature minimum, Nadir. Like, yeah, I, you could just call the start of the body clock. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good question. And um, that is why the direction of travel matters the most because... As I said before, we can move later or we can move earlier. Um, when we're moving later in the day, we're shifting the body clock to the afternoon. Um, it moves faster mm-hmm. than if you move it to the morning. So uh, the, the most recent uh, consensus statement um, for traveling athletes uh, for jet lag is two hours per time zone change each day um, when traveling uh, east, so when you're moving your body clock later in the day, and one hour the other way. So you've got to you've got to do the mental maths for wherever you're traveling, or if you're doing shift work, um, 
shift work intervention or shift work uh, block that moving moving later in the day you might be further away from the time if you go that way but you're moving two hours each day so you can't move say 10 hours in one day um the yeah. max you, you could move was two hours a day so i'm um absolutely garbage at math so what what i might get an example from you right now if possible so let's say i'm living in melbourne and i've been working just a regular shift throughout the day and i'm about to go on to night shift what yep. would the process be for me to try and start that process um the day before i go into night shift it's a good question and the question first is i guess um do you want to shift beforehand or do you want to gradually shift um, while you're in the in the, the block of shifts? So um, if you, it's the same question with jet lag. Some athletes want to move beforehand, before they travel, move their body clock. It's really hard yeah. to do. Um, whereas uh, we usually recommend doing it once you get there because the, the sun is out at the right time. Um, right, okay. There's a few, there's a few um, different uh, techniques people can use. Sometimes people stay up the night before their first um, night shift, if they can, obviously. Um, that one builds up mm -hmm. the sleep pressure so that they can potentially sleep in the afternoon before their shift. I know when I did uh, shift work when I was in the sleep lab, I could never sleep before my first shift just because my body clock wasn't ready and I'm not a napper. So um, yeah. I was struggling with that. So um, in the lab... If we're doing a shift, shift work intervention, uh, potentially we keep everyone up until 3 a.m. the day before their first night shift um, and then allow them to nap during the day and then um, go to their night shift um, that night. And then depending on the environment, they, they will shift or they won't shift. So if they're, if they're a truck driver, okay. for example, they might not be exposed to much light. Um, so their body clock yeah. might not move that much, but then they're sleep deprived. So then we're treating the sleep deprivation rather than the body clock shifting and this might break yeah, right. a few people's brains and it's uh <laughs> yeah it's something people grapple with a little bit is like with jet lag and with circadian misalignment um it's probably easier to contextualize it with jet lag is sleep doesn't really impact your jet lag sleep just makes you like tired right so the body clock you could stay up for I mean, it's not ideal and I'm definitely not recommending this. You could be awake for 48 hours post-flight, right? But you could effectively move your body clock to overcome the jet lag. So you'll be t you'll be sleep deprived, but your body clock has moved closer. Right. Um, so okay. it, you can detach the two things. Um, so people yeah. always say, when should I sleep for my jet lag or when should I sleep for uh, my shift work? And it's, uh, my general recommendation is if you're getting that light at the right time that we told you to sleep wherever you want like get as much sleep as you can um, in that context there are obviously optimal times but um when if you're looking at a pure body clock um intervention uh light is the most important thing there is um the other two things that can work or um that we don't usually use but you can is uh, exogenous melatonin um so that's just melatonin pills that you might see a lot more prevalent in the states um a lot more availability yeah. over there to melatonin it's harder to get than here yeah yeah it's prescription i'm pretty sure we we generally don't recommend it just because it can be a little bit harder to um it's a bit more complicated to use 
basically what melatonin does is it does the opposite of light. So it pulls you. So um, if you have melatonin before your CBT being or your body clock minimum, it pulls you, pulls you that other way. Um, so you can use that and light to potentially help the body clock move in a certain direction. Um, but we don't typically use it with athletes just because it's quite complex and um, it has a, so it's a chronobiotic, so it moves the body clock like we've just been talking about, um, but it's also mm-hmm. has a sedative effect. So it, like a sleeping tablet, but not as strong, so it will make you sleepy. So yeah, uh, the, the risk with melatonin, and this might be a bit of a topic jump, but um, some of your listeners might be interested if they, if they use melatonin. Um, if you go to sleep and then wake up in the middle of the night near your body clock minimum and take melatonin because um, you just want to fall back to sleep and be frustrated, that can actually move your body clock the wrong way. And then the next night, you're out of whack and it's going to affect your sleep the next night. So it, we've got to be very careful with, uh, with supplementing with melatonin. Um, and the only other thing with limited evidence to move the body clock is exercise. Um, does the same thing as light direction wise, but it's just not as strong. So potentially for an athlete, we could say, um, here are the times that will shift your body clock. You need light, go for a run or go schedule your training time or your surf um, during this time. And you get the light, you get the exercise, you're happy, go to bed after that. Um, yeah, again, uh, I'll probably provide a lot of context dependent stuff, but hopefully that's some, some helpful info for people. Hundred percent, mate. That's absolutely wild. Like it's it's pretty crazy to think. I mean, obviously, this is the stuff you surround yourself with every day. But it's like it's wild to think that something as simple as light exposure can have such a drastic effect on something even more crazy, which is the the fact that our body, like the circadian rhythm and, and the the body clock, it's yeah. it's crazy. I, it's going to take me a while to wrap my head around the, <laughs> the whole time and and the yeah, yeah. which direction it's going in and stuff. I'll have to listen listen back that's to fine. this one for sure. Yeah. But um, but yeah, that's super interesting. Super interesting. Yeah, and I think if if there's another low hanging fruit thing for people, um, with terms of light, is uh, their house lights. So the the devices, the light from devices, get a, gets a bad rap. Um, but the, the main thing that's going to move your body clock at night is it fluorescent lighting in your house. So uh, turn off the lights, turn on the lamp. Um, right. Yeah, that's going to be the best, best way. Interesting, man. So one of the questions I was thinking of coming into the studio today, um, no one was going to talk to you around, obviously this probably applies more so for athletes than, than the, the general population, but obviously a lot of our audience um are people who take their their health and fitness quite seriously and and train pretty hard and and want to recover optimally between days and training sessions and whatnot when we think about pre-sleep so let's say there's someone listening who's either amateur or professional athlete um wanting to prime themselves uh physically and mentally the night before a game so they might have a big game coming day um and, and i think most people would uh, agreed that sometimes it's quite hard to sleep, particularly when you're when you're nervous about the game the following day and um, and whatnot. But you're wanting to to wake up as optimal as possible. Is yeah. there any approaches that you can recommend, or whether it be the setting of the room you're in, whether it be the temperature, whatever it is um, that you can recommend in order to get the highest quality sleep the night before the game? And then the second part of that question would be post 
post-workout or post-exercise um, the, the same thing. Like what conditions should we be putting ourselves into in order to allow the body to recover as quickly as possible or as effectively as possible? Yeah, it's a good question for the night before question I get a lot. And I think the first thing I'll say or the caveat to the, to the whole discussion itself is um, the week before the game is more important than the night before. Um, so for those who don't sleep very well, it's kind of it can and become a feedback loop for that night before um, sleep, and they're worried that they don't sleep well before the night, uh, the night before a game, and then they don't sleep well because of that, and they're stressed about it. Um, so my first thing would be to say if if you do struggle to sleep before a game, it's okay, um, you still be able to perform as long as you're you're backing that sleep in the week prior and you're building up to it. Um, in terms of, of sleep environment and um, yeah, the, the wind down for sleep. I find it's, and it's probably not a scientific answer, but it is a very uh, personal uh, process because it, it's mm. behavioral, it's physiological, like it, it's all meshed into one. And I, I would say there's, there's non-negotiables in terms of, um, as I said before, dim the lights, Pretty much, I, I, as soon as the sun goes down, I, I'm not turning the, the full house lights on. Um, have the TV on, phone's fine. They just dim the lights. Um, then you want the, the room to be cool, comfy bed, you want to be in your own environment. Sometimes you're in a hotel room if you're a traveling athlete. And that, that, we often find that that's a good environment for athletes that actually sleep better in hotels. Um, so maybe try and replicate that cool, cool environment. Um, in terms of behaviors, uh, some people have behavioral triggers like a warm drink or, yeah. um, yeah, a cold drink or might have a, a kiwi fruit before bed or whatever it is. As long as it's not going to be detrimental to your sleep, I would recommend that and doing that at the same time every night. Um, mm -hmm. that's going to help with our behavioral trigger for, for bedtime. And then it's just sort of like rinse and repeat from there. Your body knows what it's doing. Um, and yeah, tick off, tick off all the things you need to do. Um, a big consideration with athletes is, is device use. And as I touched on before, there's a lot of worry about the light that gets uh, the blue light through the, the phones, and which is not much of a concern for me personally, um, because there's more evidence that the, the ceiling lights are worse, but it's more of a behavioral component. So if you, if you know that if you're stressed about the night before and you're gonna be scrolling through uh, content or talking to someone, um, that's what's going to delay their time. And we, what can be helpful is making a, a checklist, uh, a, a device checklist. Okay, I want to scroll my Instagram and get my fix. I want to talk to my partner at home. I want to text um, the person I'm playing a game with tomorrow to confirm that this is my role. Tick that off before you get into bed um, so that you're not ruminating in bed thinking about that before the game um and that that can be that can be a only a pre-game routine that can be an everyday routine um so it, yep. it's really just safeguarding against any distractions uh, and keeping the environment as sleep friendly as possible but also not um, limiting yourself too much so that you stress about so, so for example when a, a, a strict coach or something might take someone's phone away while they're up on a camp or something at 5 p.m. and then that's creating stress that I haven't spoken to my partner and I wonder if they're okay. 
and they're not going to sleep. So there's a, there's a tipping point yeah. at which um, you want to tick off the boxes for the, for the behavioral components, but also create that, that good environment for sleep. And light's a big one when, when, when you're in bed, obviously. You want that dark, cool environment. Yeah, I think um, what I'm taking from it anyway and, and from a number of these answers throughout the whole episode up until now is that a lot of it comes down to routine and habit and yeah. and your body and your mind starting to understand and learn like, all right, this is a trigger. If, it, if, it's, if I've brushed my teeth, I've been maybe watching a bit of TV, all the lights are off, I'm, I'm laying in bed and I've just had a hot chocolate or whatever the whatever the fuck the example is and it's a warm drink and i do this every night then that's a that's a trigger and that's something that's going to allow my body and brain to understand that it's time to wind down Um, so i think coming back to the consistent sleep times realistically it sounds like it's a it should be of high importance to start to come up with some form of structure and routine that you try and stick to as often as possible yeah 100 percent. that's that's the biggest bang for buck really because yeah if you if you listen to Google's circadian rhythm, it'll probably pop up with a with a chart showing the fluctuations, and that is what is happening. Your body's going through that cycle each yeah. day, and if you can um, understand that, uh, that's that's the most powerful tool. If you can understand how the body, in isolation of all of your thoughts and the psychological aspects of it, um, if you just look at the body purely in a physiological sense and you understand it, you can identify. Okay, yeah. You start to feel, yeah, my body's on its down regulation now and it's preparing for bed and that almost um, gives you confidence in that your body's doing the right thing and can help you fall asleep yeah. faster because you're like, that's pretty cool. My body is amazing. Each day it knows this point. I'm, I'm about to do this and um, it's doing its thing. And understanding that is really a powerful tool. So, yeah, if you're an athlete or a, or a shift worker or anything and... and want to learn more definitely learn more about circadian rhythm or just the basics of, of how it fluctuates each day and, and how your body initiates sleep because um, we, we need to give the body credit it's, it's, uh, it's like clockwork literally yeah pun intended i like it i'm interested to hear whether i don't know if this is an area that you've uh, specified uh, or sorry that you've put too much time into or, or whether you spend much time um, understanding this or, or whatnot but I know that in the US in particular and I feel like in Australia now um, we're kind of gradually catching catching up a bit but I know there's a higher percentage of people that are starting to use products such as THC and CBD like CBD uh, definitely but I feel like more and more people are now starting to either be prescribed or just self-prescribing with THC, so cannabis. In the States, I feel like it's even more common that a lot of athletes, and I'll use something like the NBA, for example, I I know there's a a fair percentage of NBA athletes who would smoke weed after they play or or outside of training and whatnot, um, uh, just recreationally, but a lot of them use it for whether it be inflammation and all the rest of it as well. What's the research on the quality of sleep that you're getting after using something like THC? It's a good question and it's a difficult one, I guess, for me to answer. I'll probably am not the, the, don't have the expertise in this area specifically just because um, we, to get to get a study like that through ethical approval into our lab is, is pretty difficult. Um, 
I think what I'll say is that there's evidence that it does something, understanding how it does that um, or the mechanisms behind it for, for different individuals um, is complex. So yeah, I, I, I don't really have the, the answer for you on that one in terms of uh, sleep in particular. There, there may be other um, areas in terms of um, pain management, et cetera, that people in that area may have more of a comprehensive answer probably because more research has been done on it and it's probably easier to, to collect that data. Um, yep. Yeah, so unfortunately, sorry, I probably don't have the, the enough expertise to answer that uh, to give justice to, to, the, to the audience. No stress at all. Absolutely no stress at all. Uh, one more question on, on, I guess, on this, uh, not this topic, I suppose, but maybe I don't know how much um, research has gone into this as well, but um, have you done much work around, uh, I guess, deep meditation and the effect that that has on the ability to, I guess, fall asleep or, or even like the brainwaves when you're in deep meditation and whether that can impact recovery um, mentally and physically? Yeah, so I guess um, we, we've done a recent study, yet. we haven't published it as yet. Um, when we're looking at, I guess, uh, research interventions, we, we, it's sort of hard to conceptualise all of the like, breathing and um, meditation, um, sort of limited in our protocols, but we have done studies in uh, diaphragmatic breathing, for example, or resonant frequency yep. breathing. Um, Basically, I mean, the, the, the aim of, of most of those exercises, or at least the ones that we've uh, looked at, is to, to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So slow down mm. the system. Um, and that there is, there is merit to the, to the theory that, yeah, bringing, bringing our um, parasympathetic nervous system into play inherently is related to sleep. So something before sleep... Um, would help with sleep with sleep um it's not gonna hurt again when i when i yeah. said before we're, we're we're reverse engineering that um outcome so if you're doing a diaphragmatic um, breathing during sleep uh just before sleep it's going to put you in that restful state already um i find it's a it's also a it's a very interesting way to help you understand your body as well in terms of um you can do the same protocol and but you can also feel your response differ each day. So um, when you collect a lot of mm. data, you, you you see the fluctuations in in your physiological data, but sometimes you can feel it too. And doing the same, for example, resonant frequency breathing each day, and someday you can feel that your your heart rate, see that your heart rate variability responds differently. And that is the gist of what wearables are trying to do. Um, you've got the same yeah. stimulus. Um, and your body is reacting either because of the stress that happened before it or there might be an illness going on or something, but it really helps understand your body. And that goes back to what I said before. If you understand what's going on, um, mm. it helps um, conceptualize the sleep and circadian rhythm city as a whole. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say that anything related to, to understanding your breath, um, I mean, it's the organ that we have conscious control over so um it feeds straight back into that nervous system loop so understanding that and, and trying different techniques is definitely something that could could help people with um 
sleep and um, activating that parasympathetic um, nervous system. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned melatonin before. Uh, are there mm-hmm. any other supplements, whether it be something like a magnesium or, or whatever it may be, that you actually recommend that is that will help allow the body to to get into um, that state easy easier or um, at, at a better quality when we're sleeping? Yeah, it's it's a it's the uh, gold question. I mean, the the magnesium has evidence for, for health with recovery, muscle soreness, uh, but sort of limited evidence around sleep. Um, there is some, but um, we have looked in our lab at a number of nutritional ingredients. Um, basically, that they all surround um, melatonin and stimulating that the melatonin in the brain. Um, one of the stuff, one of the ingredients that we did identify that had a little effect on, on falling asleep faster was uh, alpha lactobumin, which is um, actually found in milk. So the old wives' tale of having a glass of milk before bed kind of rung true in that context. Um, but what I'd say is um, the behavioural part of, of sleep management or, or sleep considerations, hygiene, all that stuff. Uh, if you're doing all of that right, you, you probably don't need a supplement, if that makes sense. They're not going to hurt. But if you're have, if you're having that constant bedtime and you're happy with your sleep, you're not sleeping during you're not sleepy during the day or uh, overly fatigued, then the, the behavioural stuff is definitely the, the the path to go down. But there are there are some options um, in terms of, of supplements that you can try, but they're definitely not essential. I was when you were speaking before about the body clock stuff. Um, something that popped into mind for me. And I don't know how much time you've spent uh, even thinking about this, but when you think of someone like an NBA player, right, who's got eighty-two games in a season, some days playing in multiple cities across three or four different days, different time zones. I'm assuming as well. Um, mm-hmm. At some points, like, must be fucking quite difficult for them to get any form of consistency across what their circadian rhythm would be when they're constantly yeah. up at different times and traveling into different time zones very regularly? Yeah, it, it's quite complex. And a lot of the time they don't move. So they don't move their body clock. So they might be playing in Los Angeles. They're from New York, but they stay on New York time. As long as you, you don't get the light at the wrong time, you can do that successfully. So technically you could go on holiday to Europe and not be jet lagged. Yeah. Um, but you'd just be sleeping during the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the jet lag and the, the frequent travel piece with athletes is quite complex because um, sometimes the, the recommendations or the consensus statements that are written by scientists don't fit in the real world. So for example, um, there may be an athlete that's playing uh, a, a game in Europe, European time zone so they're traveling from Australia to there and then the next week they have to come back. There's not enough time to bring them back to Australia, yeah. um, body clock time. Um, so actually moving them the opposite direction that's recommended means that when they're playing that game, they'll, they'll still be jet lagged, but their body clock will be, let's say 7 p.m. instead of 1 a.m. So it's like almost hedging your bets that um, yeah, this isn't the recommended scientific way to move someone in a normal situation, but athletes aren't normal in terms of they're on the end of the bell curve. They've got to play against 
class athletes while jet lagged, what is the least amount jet lag we can get them in three days? And so it's not an exact science always. Um, but I think the NBA players would be definitely harder to, to manage in terms of um, getting them to do things because a lot of the time they're, they're their, own, their own athlete in terms of whether they listen to, to practitioners or um, they might just play games instead of <laughs> get, getting the life. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a range 100%. of interventions that you can put together. 100% man. Mate, I want to be um, obviously mindful of your time. There's just kind of one last question I wanted to throw at you before we wrap it up. Yep. Coming back to the fitness wearables, um, I'm just going to use the example of Whoop because that's something that, that I wear and m many of the um, people in the audience do as well. Yep. When I've had a, a poor quality sleep for say one or two nights or maybe I'm just in an overreaching phase with training and, and my HRV is quite low and my sleep score is no good and my recovery score is out of whack as well. How much should we buy into or read into a poor recovery score and how much should we let that determine whether or not we have a crack with training that day or, or whether we determine um, you know, what we should be focusing on with training? So let's say I meant to do a heavy deadlift day today, but I've woken up with a horrible sleep score and poor recovery score. Should I be letting that to determine the fact that I should do deadlifts on a different day and, and switch it up considering my central nervous system is most likely not as primed or um, yeah, I mean, how, how much should we use that data to dictate what we do each day? It's, it's a great question. Um, as a, as a scientist, it's the, the composite scores, I guess what we call them, whether it's a readiness score or a recovery score from, from any of the devices, the trouble with, um, I guess how we, we implement or we practice our expertise in this space is um, validation. Um, and the tricky thing with, uh, with wearables is the recovery scores and the composite scores often are proprietary. So physiologists or, yep. or people working uh, in elite sport, they don't actually know the each, there's a general idea, but the, the end number, we, you can't really know exactly what's going into it. Um, Yep. What I will say is, yeah, if you, if you do get a, a low composite score, um, I think leaning on your subjective ratings is really valuable. Um, a lot of the, the coaches or all the, the um, sports scientists that have been around for 50 odd years, the, their first recommendation to any coach or any practitioner working with an athlete is to first ask them how they're feeling. Um, yeah. And that's invaluable so whether you change your i think it, it is complex and if you're wondering if you're a person wearing a device and you have a resource like a coach definitely lean on them when you when you're wondering whether to do something mm -hmm. or not to do something based on data um, but leaning on your subjective feelings it, is going to be stronger because um, i think deep down you know whether you should probably do that on that day if you're if you've been training for an extended period of time and you understand your body um, in saying that use the tools um, if, if it's yeah. if you've got gotten three or four bad scores um, that's suggesting there's a change in your physiology but also if you're seeing if you're going to see four bad scores in a row your heart rate variability and your sleep raw data are going to reflect that too so you, you're going to see yeah. that in the data anyway um, so I'd always lean back onto, onto the raw data. Um, 
but yeah, if there was a one one off uh, reduction in a composite score that provided by a, a wearable or a company, then um, I wouldn't worry too much about it acutely. So, for example, we use the the night before sleep. Um, so, if, if the last weekend the two footy grand finals, if one of the players woke up with a bad recovery score, they're going to go out there and give their all anyway, and it's not going to. Uh, they're still going to be able to perform. It's just potentially um, if their physiology is saying that a low HRV or there's something going on that's suggesting that their physiology or, or loving nervous system is on a downward trend, then they might not recover as well the next day, but they're still going to be able to perform um, unless there's something drastically going wrong. So, uh, yeah, it, it is, again, context dependent. So lean back on, on, on all the tools at your disposal, uh, especially if you have a resource like a coach. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I was I was leaning towards that anyway. I think yeah, for most people that are that are listening or or watching uh, at the moment, I think would most likely have at least a, a decent a level of experience with training and, and starting to understand their body. And and regardless of you know what data you're getting from um, from wearables or, or whatever it is, I think it's always yeah. you know, for me anyway. I'm always kind of going to go off off my gut feeling more so than just what I'm being told by by a wearable regardless of i guess how um detailed or accurate it is uh but yeah. as you said i mean some i think a lot of it's just common sense right it's like if you've got a few fucking shit sleep scores and recovery scores for a few days in a row then one you probably need to look at what you're doing for your for your sleep routine and, and what's going on there in the first place and secondly it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that you're probably not going to be at your absolute optimal level to to go and train at your best um yeah, after a few so. nights like that um, yeah, mate, sure. but I really do appreciate your time today. Um, would love to stay in touch, obviously, and, and I'm glad we're able to connect. And I know the audience will have taken a lot of value from today. So um, obviously doing great work and I'm looking forward to keeping up with it and appreciate your, your time and um, your expertise today. And um, we'll make sure that the audience is able to connect with you in any way that they can or follow along with your work uh, by putting some links and stuff in the show notes. But um, yeah, really appreciate your time today, Dan. It was really great to be on, have a chat. And yeah, definitely if, if any of the listeners uh, have any questions, feel free to shoot them. Um, I'm sure my, my Instagram will be on the show notes or something like that. So yeah, feel free to shoot anything. Very happy to help. Awesome. Much appreciated, mate. And thanks to everybody who has tuned in, either watching or listening to this at the moment. Um, I'm sure you've taken away plenty of value. If you have, we'd love to hear your feedback. And of course, if you can grab a screenshot of this episode, share it on your social media or share the link to this episode with someone that you feel like could benefit from listening to it or watching it. And uh, I'm looking forward to chatting to you on the next episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. <laughs>